Oh, yes, it is college football season. It is week one in the books officially, even though we've got that holiday weekend game coming up. I want to get to you on Pac-12 football. I'm Yogi Roth. This is the Ted and Yogi Pac-12 Adventure, where we go around all Pac-12 footprint, college football, talk all things, all storylines, all game analysis in a way that you've never heard about it. We believe in your podcast life. Also joined by Michael Molinari, the producer of our broadcast every weekend. He's produced everything over 20 plus years, NBA finals, college football, you name it. We're going to get into stories from him as well and try to give you an interesting take on Pac-12 football, one that you may not have ever heard of before. So Ted, Michael, welcome to our first inaugural podcast. What an adventure, Yog, and, and it's fabulous we have Michael with us because we're going to introduce the Pac-12 football world to the man that helps us circumnavigate the conference, constantly telling us what to do. And Yogi, what's great is you get to tell him what to do on this pod. I love that. <laughs> and we're going to do this, by the way. Hi, Mike. By the way, we're going to do this every week in 30 minutes, right? That's our target because we understand there's a, so many pods out there. It's hard to donate an hour and a half to a single pod, which sometimes happens. So we're going to try to do this with a little brevity. Agree with that. Michael, how's it feel joining the podcast? You're usually calling all the shots a little little different here, but I, I have a feeling by the end of the podcast season, you'll probably be producing this thing anyway. Uh, I'm really excited. I, we have so much fun working together. It's nice to be uh, maybe get a little bit of that to the people listening. And uh, hopefully, we'll see how week one goes, see if you guys want me back next week. That's what I'm counting on. <laughs> well, well, guys, there was a collective groan because we were all together in Seattle Saturday. We all flew home Saturday night. And when we got home, I know I groaned loudly when I saw the final score of the Oregon-Auburn game. That was the, the game that everybody in the conference had been targeting. And it just so frustrated me because we saw how much Oregon left on the field in the first half. And then watching the tape again, I, guys, I got to say, I was, I was taken and disappointed in the fourth quarter, both for Oregon as a team and for Justin Herbert and the beginning of what he hopes is going to be a spectacular season. Ted, I totally agree. It was one of those, you know, we took off from Seattle after our game. It was right around halftime. You feel so good about yourself. They were running the football, moving the football. Bo Nix looked like a true freshman. And, you know, we talked about in our broadcast, knowing Bo since he was 16 and he's a gamer. And he showed up in the fourth quarter when he needed to. And Oregon had opportunities. You know, you can even go on the touchdown. There's a great opportunity to knock the ball down. And we always say it, DBs play DB because they're not wide receivers and it's usually a ball skill thing and to me it was a missed opportunity knocking that ball down late and overall I think when Oregon looked back at that game it was a game of missed opportunities because I think it's safe to say that physically they didn't have a problem playing the vaunted SEC specifically the defensive front yeah you know to me Yogi and Michael was one of those games where I watched the fourth quarter and there's probably five different plays individual plays where if Oregon makes one of those five plays they likely win the game the fourth down run could with all of the buffoonery that went on around Justin Herbert's injury if they make that first down their win probability goes through the roof and and that was what I was frustrated about watching it back was that they didn't make any of those five individual plays that win the game for him well we went back uh, at our Washington game and looked at three moments from last year the missed, uh, the missed field goal against Oregon, the fumble against Auburn on the goal line, and the pick six against Cal. And that's what it comes down to. If you want to make the playoff, you've got to make a play 
you've got to make a play at the key moment. And obviously, Oregon could not do that on Saturday. Yeah, so that's going to set up, obviously, they're going to have to make a run here, just as we know historically in the college football playoff, no team's made it with two losses. So with their schedule, their road schedule specifically, it's going to be interesting as the year goes on. Uh, let's get on with this podcast, though. So every single time we come out of the gates, Ted and I are just going to have four downs, four thoughts that we have around the weekend impact to a football or things that we're looking forward to. Uh, so, Ted, I'll let you go first, man. Let's kick out some of your four downs, and we'll bang them around. Well, my first down is one of those things I hate to have to talk about. I don't think anybody in football likes to talk about it, but we can't avoid it. There was a brutal hit on K.J. Costello, who, along with Justin Herbert, they're the, the two top returning quarterbacks this year in the conference. K.J. Costello gets knocked out late first half against Northwestern. Brutal hit that the entire world sees as targeting, including the most the Accomplished officials that are watching, except for the Big Ten crew. And I just say shame, shame, shame on that crew for not making the call. It doesn't offset the injury that KJ Costello suffered. But, and I think this is something Michael is great because Michael, who's, we, we call it the view from the truck, can understand what's the protocol, what happens in that situation. And, and you watched it as well as we did on tape, Michael, on Saturday. What happens in that deal with the replays and the reviews? I think the first thing people need to understand is there's, at least in the Pac-12, and I believe a Pac-12, Big Ten, SEC has the same protocol, there's three looks that are going to the replay booth, not just the program feed you're seeing. So they get the cart view, which is the, the uh, camera that stays on the quarterback. They get the high end zone, which is the, you know, the typical coach's tape look. And then they get two other cameras beyond program. So I think there's a little confusion if they don't stop it, that they haven't reviewed it. And also, KJ Costello was down for almost five minutes. So there's no doubt in my mind that the replay booth definitely looked at several angles. I have no idea why they made the determination that it wasn't targeting, that you'd have to ask them. But as far as was it reviewed, there's no doubt in my mind that they reviewed it. Um, and again, the one thing I would say is, I would have liked to have seen a look in real speed because I think that would have taken any doubt away um, that the defender had time to see that Cutstella was going into the slide. Therefore, he was a defensive player. I mean, once when the quarterback's yeah. running with the ball, they're not a defensive player. So a forearm to the head or neck would not be targeting. But once they go into the slide, they are defenseless. And at that point, a forearm that we saw to the head or neck is definitely targeting. And Yogi, let me, as, since you're the player in our group here, when I saw the replay, I immediately thought of Steve Young, whom I've gotten to know through the years, and he has told me this on several other occasions about similar plays. And quarterbacks in this era have been taught to slide feet first, and apparently they are afforded total protection when that happens. You are giving yourself up. That's why this lack of call to me was so galling. But Steve Young has always said to me, he went down head first because of what we just saw with K.J. Costello. He said, when I went head first, I felt I went underneath the incoming fire, so to speak. Does that sound true to you? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fair point. But the way that quarterbacks are trained now, and K.J. Costello as well, I mean, his health has been in question throughout his career a lot of times. You're always taught, give yourself up and you're going to be safe. And even defensive coordinators teach their defense. If you see the quarterback begin to lean back, just pull off. So I think to Michael's point, 
I was blown away that it's not called. Because usually, and what officials tell us every year, is you call it if there's any doubt, and then you can take it away, per se. And especially this year, with the way the rule is laid out, there is no gray area. Every indicator has to be given a yes. And to me, this was a no-brainer. You at least throw the flag, because the quarterback gave himself up and got hit in the head. So I was blown away. I'm curious to see what the Big Ten does. Right? The SEC has a Twitter handle. The Pac-12 is going to announce every Monday, and the game is officiated by our officials. If there's a questionable call, a statement on it, and at least as of Monday morning at 9.30 Pacific, I haven't seen anything about the Big Ten saying, yes, we screwed that one up. Yeah, and Dave, David Shaw will talk on Tuesday, as you're all listening to this. That's the first formal word we'll get about about Costello. All right, second down. You said statement, Yogi. My second down, Utah. We all know how heavily favored they are in the South. When they won their game at BYU, they ran out the clock the last nine minutes of the game. Nine minutes. BYU never touched the ball. Zach Moss carried eight times in those nine minutes. That, to me, massive statement by Kyle Whittingham. Yeah, I tell you what, I, you know, we've gone to all 12 schools on our training camp tour, Ted, and I think you'd agree, Utah has looked the best. They looked the best on the hoof in spring when Michael and I were there doing spring game. They looked the best in training camp, and they looked the best, I thought, on Saturday, even though Oregon played well, as we referenced earlier, to be able to dictate terms in a rivalry game against a team like that. And I get it, BYU may not be world beaters, but they're a really talented team in a rivalry game. I was really impressed in this new offense led by Andy Ludwig to say, all right, stop me, stop me. You know what's coming. And Zach Moss, he went off. And he has not played well historically as a freshman and sophomore against BYU. And to me, it was the most convincing win of any team in the Pac-12 conference because they played a legit opponent and it was a real physical game. And they dealt with all the hype around them. And they said, all right, we're going to be not just a physical defense, but a physical offense. And it's a dramatic shift from who they've been over the course, you could say, the last eight, nine years, because they've been some form of spread offense. All right, and third down goes to that same thing, because there was another rivalry game, just like Utah-BYU. Colorado-Colorado State. In that state, that's passionate. And I lived it firsthand two years ago for the first time. And I was taken by it. But Colorado wins, and guys, we know how good LaVisca Chenault is. We know how experienced Montez is. But they, they have a running back, at least this game. Alex Fontenot goes over 100. Is that the lead back? That was my takeaway. Is that what Mel Tucker's looking for? Because if he can have any sort of a run game to go with Montez and Chenault, Colorado can make some noise. Yeah, I think he is the back. You know, we kind of talked about it in training camp. Is it uh, Fontenot? Is it Jaron Mangum out of Detroit? Really talented player coming out of uh, a really interesting school in Detroit. It's literally right downtown. I got to visit it over the summer, and it's, it's, it's like the total Detroit-type high school that you'd imagine. And, and his, his tape was great. He was impressive. And I thought he might be the guy. But to watch them, especially last year, I think they led the Pac-12 in sacks given up. Offensive line struggled. And here again comes Mel Tucker. And I, we've always said it, and Michael says it every weekend, you're a reflection of the head coach. And their personality was that. So physical, flew around. I thought the offensive line did a nice job getting after it. And again, running the football. I mean, this conference is so known around the country as, oh, you just throw it around. But that, to me, is by people who don't always do their homework and recognize that it can be a physical league. And I, I thought that's what we saw from them. All right. And my fourth down, perception. Uh, and, and Mel Tucker talked about this at Media Day. And 
uh, quote that uh, even uh, some of the ESPN announcers brought up the other night, which I thought was terrible about this being a tennis shoes league because the, the facts of the last couple of years don't support that at all. But let's say who's playing defense, all right? We understand offense. So we saw teams like Oregon State and Arizona score a ton of points in their first game, but they couldn't stop anybody. So to me, clearly Utah played defense. But two other teams, we saw Washington. Now they played, albeit a very good FCS school, they played an FCS program, but they never let Eastern Washington do what Eastern Washington shines at, which was run the ball. And Stanford, Norman Northwestern played in the Big Ten Championship game last year. And they have a, a transfer quarterback that they had great hopes for. Stanford's D holds them to seven points. To me, that stood out as teams that at least made an opening statement to say, look, we're playing some D this year. Yeah, I, they're real. You know, when you go back to the stat uh, we talked about in our broadcast, teams that go to the CFP, other than year one, every team that's won the title has led the country or been top five in turnovers forced, yards per rush, and uh, yards per game allowed. So you look at that, and that's UW. Right, that's Utah. You know, Stanford. I love that linebacking crew. They're going to get off the bus and look as good as anybody's around the country. So, it's going to be fun to watch, and especially this weekend coming up: SC, Stanford, Keaton Slovis, which then leads me to to my first of four downs. Keaton Slovis, true freshman. I want to ask you, Michael. You've produced a lot of games at SC with a lot of talented quarterbacks. What about playing that position with those lights? Do you recognize when you're producing a game? where you can say, yep, that, that kid's a gamer. You can, hopefully you get a chance to talk to him before, but obviously in those situations you don't. And I think, I think what you need to do and what we do is focus everything on getting shots of that quarterback after the play and how he looks, talking to his teammates, how he looks to the sideline and get tight to those eyes and look for the confidence in the eyes. And I think uh, Scott Barkey, our director, who hasn't been mentioned yet, but is... Uh, big part of our team as well, does a great job at getting the shots that matter on the air. And we would have been all over just shots of, of him the entire time after the play happens, because that's the story. So I think that's how you kind of you tell from the look in the eyes and the body language, like Lewis Johnson would do on the sideline, watching him uh, while uh, the defense is on the field and get a report on that. So that's how we try and do it from the truck. Yeah, Ted, I don't know about you, but I was watching that game back, and I got to sit in some quarterback meetings this summer with SC, and Keen's an impressive guy, you know, and, you know, Kurt Warner was a guy who coached him in high school, and I can remember seeing Kurt at the Super Bowl and saying, hey, tell me about this guy, and he goes, man, he just worked at his craft so much, like he lived in my house, and Kurt's house is different than all of our homes, because he's got a, like, full-size football field in the backyard, so they would be literally throwing the ball, doing drops, etc., but I still think at SC, when you sign there, you're a household name. But when you start there, you're a Heisman candidate. They got a true freshman second year in a row starting at quarterback. And this one isn't necessarily by choice. Week two going up against Stanford. I'm so excited to watch him because the system won't change today. They only have 12 plays. And they talk about that very often. But I'm curious what you're most excited to see yeah. from this young man. Well, look, I guess this is a bigger picture outside your first down, Yog and, and Michael, is that Look at what's happened with quarterbacks already in the conference, right? Justin Herbert had his you know, big stage moment, and it didn't go the way that everybody would have hoped. Uh, K.J. Costello's hurt. Now, my little word is telling me it may not be as bad as we all feared, but again, that's to be formally stated uh, by Stanford. And beyond that, you say, you have a freshman now playing, right? 
But look what we saw this weekend. Who started a quarterback for Auburn? A freshman. <laughs> Who started a quarterback for Boise State at Florida State and won in the second half? A freshman. Of course, we know what Trevor Lawrence did last year. Uh, so there's, there's this collision to me, guys, between the, the commonly held conventional wisdom, oh, college football is too hard for a freshman quarterback, and then all of these examples that kind of smack that down. Yeah, I'm with you there, you know, and I see it with the Elite 11 and these kids coming out, whether it's Bo Nix, as you referenced, um, whoever the young guys are, they're more ready to play physically than ever before. To me, it's just the other stuff. It's does he feel the pressure of the Coliseum walls, you know, when Stanford comes in and what that place can be like? Does he feel the pressure around the program in general coming off a of five and seven season? That's going to be the magic that Graham Harrell, their OC quarterback coach, is going to have to handle. Um, so that being said, speaking of young teams, we've got them this weekend, UCLA. 87. Ted, 87 freshmen and sophomores. I know you know that already. <laughs> but when I watched their game on Thursday night against Cincinnati, I said, man, it was adversity. You know, a young team didn't deal with it well because they ran some fun stuff on offense. But overall, they had their chances. But you look at the first drive of the game. Just curious what you're thinking about heading into this first game for us to call of Chip Kelly's 2019 season. Yeah, you know, that was probably, I guess for many of us, at least for me, maybe the biggest letdown of week one was just hoping to see in its opening game that stride of a Chip Kelly offense. And we just didn't see it. And uh, breaking it down, I'm sure Chip will have all the reasons for it. Um, I will say, I'll say two things about coming up this weekend. One is, you know, San Diego State, Rocky Long is so well-respected in the game as a defensive coach. There will not be a Rocky Long-coached team that doesn't have good defense, and they play that unique 3-3-5 that he's renowned for. Um, their first game clearly indicates they don't have great offense right now, but you know their defense is going to be there. The second point to me is, and I spent a year working with Chip Kelly, albeit in the NFL, but I will tell you, of all the, as much as any football coach I've been around, Chip Kelly is impervious to the outside noise. Yeah. So everything that was being said in L.A. this weekend after their UCLA debut, the players I can't speak to. Chip Kelly, that won't, that won't get to him, at least the Chip Kelly I've seen. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I'm so excited to watch Dorian Thompson-Robinson against the defense you just referenced. And then this offense, mm -hmm. San Diego State's been known as a pro style. They went spread. What do they do week two? I'd assume they stick with it because that's going to be their identity, mm -hmm. I imagine. But I, I, co I remember when I was playing at Pitt, Ted, we went from pro style to spread, and it was the greatest thing ever for guys like me because that meant that I played. But that being said, we went one and five, and then we went <laughs> right back to pro style, ripped off seven straight wins, beat NC State in a bowl game, and we learned what we needed to do. There you go. All right, so, Michael, here's another perfect right in your wheelhouse. So Yogi and I – you, we were talking with you Saturday, flying home, and how does San Diego State play a game Saturday night that wasn't on television? And I spent about an hour last night searching through apps trying to find, I found like a two-minute highlight clip. This is this day they and age, were, everything. High school games are on TV. Come on. Ted, it's not all about television now. They were on the <laughs> internet on Facebook. So <laughs> face, Facebook had them on with a real uh, – legitimate broadcast but it was just on Facebook not on TV so you needed to uh, Yogi will explain to you later how you can go back and get that but um, they were on a, you know maybe a major conference in the next five years will have most of their games on 
Facebook or Google or Amazon. Who knows? Maybe they're innovators this week. Um, I had one other thing to add to that game. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's not forget. Listen, folks, that, that's, yeah. why, that's why we respect Molinari so much, all of you in pod world. <laughs> Listen to that You know answer. me, social media. Um, <laughs> Joshua Kelly, Theo Howard, Darnay Holmes, all didn't play. So let's not forget that. Hopefully those guys will get healthy and uh, it'll, the team will look a little different this week coming up. Yeah, very, very well said. All right, my third one, we'll get ripping here on these last two. Uh, Jaden Daniels, you know, one of 25 freshmen, true freshmen or retro freshmen that played in the opening game on Thursday night. <clears throat> I thought he looked the part. They get another game against uh, Sac State. Troy Taylor, now the head coach there this weekend before they got to go on the road to Michigan State. Curious you guys' takeaways and thoughts about Arizona State returning so many players, at least on the defensive side. Well, I was asking you, Yogi, because you were there. Michael and I were not. Uh, you were in Tempe for that game. I noticed this, and in fact, uh, they pointed out, I think Herb Street pointed it out in the Oregon game, was that Bo Nix in the fourth quarter looked like he was in command. He had that presence in the huddle, at the line, on the field, where, again, you didn't look at him and say, first-year guy. Did Daniels have that for ASU? Oh, yeah, he did. And I'll say what, what they did is similar to what happened with Bo, is they didn't give him too much. You know, a lot of times I think freshmen come in and they say, throw him the whole playbook at this guy. And then it takes him two years to settle in. They just gave him three plays, three plays, three plays, five plays, that's it. Back off, let him play confident. And they did the same thing with the game plan. So I can't wait because I think he's a gamer, very similar to Bo. Both of those guys were Elite 11 guys. And have that, you know, swagger to them of the stage won't be too big for me. Which, uh, okay, speaking of stages, we were there. Jacob Eason, fourth of my four downs here. I thought he was special. Going to go up against the Cal defense. Michael, I'm curious from your eyes in the truck, what did you see from Eason? And what makes you think or not think that this can be a dude that could take U-Dub schedule-wise this year? Because it is as easy as I think anybody's in the Pac-12 to the Pac-12 title again and possibly beyond? Well, first of all, he was as calm as you, in, in that situation, coming in. You talk about pressure. We talked about SC playing there, pressure. What about the kid who grew up as a Husky fan, 30 miles north, decided to go to Georgia, came back? There had to be a tremendous amount of pressure on him, and you would never know it. So that would be the first take. Secondly, the two touchdowns to Fuller, I don't care if it's Eastern Washington. I don't care if it's Cal. I don't care if it's the best DB in the country. Nobody is catching those balls except Fuller, the way they were thrown. So the pinpoint accuracy, you know, you'd heard he had a rocket arm, but the accuracy to me is what really jumped out. Those are the, those are the two things I felt like, this guy's for real. Yeah. Ted, what, did you think? what was your yeah. takeaway? No, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. That's why I'm curious to hear Michael's take on that watching because, look, the physical talent – we, we watched Friday morning in, in the bubble during the UW walkthrough, and I turned to you and some others and said, my God, you central casting, right? The guy looks the part. And as wonderful a player as Jake Browning was, Jake Browning size-wise wasn't. Jake Hayner wasn't. Eason is. Now, you have to do it because looking the part isn't enough. But when you watch the ball come off his hand, Yog, as a receiver, you felt the same way, right? There's a different... The, the phrase you footballers use is spin. Yeah. Eason has a different spin, right, the way he comes off his hand? Yeah, well, I, I like to say, can the ball speak? 
You know, can you feel it? Does it have a personality to it? And his does. I talked to a coach this morning, a head coach in this conference, and they went back and everybody watches every game week one because you're just excited to see what everybody's doing. And he said, I watched him make a throw that was full field, about 50 yards down the field, let alone the, dis- the width of it. He goes, it was probably 65 yards on a line. And I said, oh my God, we don't see somebody at UW do that. And it's been a long time. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, you're right. And I didn't see him go anywhere wrong with the ball all game. It wasn't as though he played perfect, but he didn't make unforced errors or look like a guy who wasn't in command. In fact, I thought he looked like a guy for as quiet as Michael referenced his personality to be. I thought he played really loud. So that's, you know, the funny that, that what that coach told you, uh, Yog, the last time I heard that said about a quarterback in this conference was about Andrew Luck. And Jim Harbaugh told me that when he came to the 49ers. And he said the same thing. Andrew Luck could do that, throw the ball all the way across the field, 40 yards down the field, and put it on the, on the left shoulder pad, where if it's on the left breastplate, the ball gets broken up. And if it's in the right side, it's going to get picked. And he said, that's when you knew Andrew Luck was for real. Now, I'm not trying to draw a comparison right away, but when you hear that sort of analogy, that gives you an idea of why Eason was so highly regarded, right? And what, what the possible upside is. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Okay, so we got a couple minutes left here. Uh, Michael, for you, I'm curious. Humanity. You know, we love talking about the game. Of course, love the X's and O's, but the stories are what drives us. I love to give people a little inside baseball here. When we go to production meetings, when we talk to players, Michael always runs those conversations. And I love that because I always learn from your questions. I'm curious, among the 12 teams, everybody played, whether you want to go back to week zero all the way through now, they've got 12 completed games in the Pac-12 conference. You've got a humanity moment that stuck out to you as a producer among our 12 teams from week one, what would it be? Well, I think I'm, we're all biased because we got what I call my favorite time of the week is when we get to talk to players um, on Friday. And to me, Trey Adams and his story was, and, and the way he articulated, I think he said it, I'm a football player, but football is not who I am. And we managed to get that uh, soundbite from your podcast on the air. He told a great story about perseverance and, you know, all the injuries, everything else. And he came back to play again because uh, he loved being a Washington. Um, and then the, Jeff Bechtold, who's uh, the sports information associate athletic director of Washington, he had, uh, Trey had talked about duck hunting and uh, riding four-wheelers. And Jeff was able to get us an iPhone shot of Trey being pulled by his friends out to duck hunt in a sled because his leg was bad, he couldn't walk. And we got that on the air, and that was just a, that was a fun moment that had nothing to do with football but told a great story. I love it. Ted, what are you looking forward to most as we shut down episode one of this podcast heading into week two? Well, you know, guys, look, we have a bunch of non-conference, but we have two conference games, and we understand. Stanford, USC, obviously USC with the jolt, losing JT Daniels, and whether K.J. Costello could play for Stanford or is it going to be Davis Mills? And that, for what has been a significant early season conference game, I think, what, six, seven years running now, that's a fascinating story. But the other team we haven't talked about yet, Cal. And Cal plays Washington this weekend. Now, Cal wins their game, again, against a Big Sky team in Davis, Christopher Brown runs the ball, what, 30, almost 40 times. Uh, can, can Cal dare try that kind against Washington to try that kind of play? Can Cal generate some offense? 
And then the other thing, guys, Nebraska-Colorado. I don't know how in the heck Nebraska, coming off a 4-8 and eight season, made the preseason poll, which is yet another reason why I find those things silly. But they did. They won their first game, and they go to Boulder. And what a wonderful chance for Mel Tucker in, his, in Folsom Field for the first time. You want to make a statement if Colorado could take Nebraska Saturday? Yeah, that's going to be fun. I'll tell you, I'm pumped for bounce-backs games, right? Oregon State, Hawaii, what do they do? Oregon, Nevada, Nevada with a crazy win. Another young quarterback, they beat Purdue. And then, of course, our game that we're calling UCLA, what's the bounce-back like for that program? And even Arizona, northern Arizona, uh, Khalil Tate, they had a week off. So a lot happening week two. We're going to be here every single week. Every Monday, this is going to drop. And we're going to take you along the journey with us. Right now, check it out on Spotify. It's populating within the iTunes algorithm right now, but it's out there. You can listen to it. We'll make sure all the links are on all of our social handles. Follow Ted Robinson, Michael Molinari, Yogi Roth on Twitter. It's where we'll kick them out. We'll also put them out on Facebook, LinkedIn, all the social platforms you can dream of. This will be there, and you'll be with us as we grow this thing all season long. And, of course, we want your feedback, so let us know on social. As every week, we try to bring you the most elite Pac-12 insight and with the most access because we're there literally every weekend. So, Ted, Michael, thanks for coming, man. I had a blast with you guys this afternoon. Next week. And everybody, drop some reviews and comments on there. Let us know what you think of Michael. Do you want more Michael? Because Michael, <laughs> Michael tells us he wants Michael tells us he wants more Michael. I love it. That's awesome. All right, we're out of here. we got to get ready for game two of our season. You can check it out on the Pac-12 Network Saturday afternoon. UCLA bounce back game against San Diego State. Can't wait to call this one with Ted Robinson, produced by Michael Molinari. We'll be back next week with more conversations around Pac-12 football. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.